0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to TheAnalysis.News. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the website. There's a subscribe button on YouTube, a share buttons all over the place. And the more you share, the more we grow. And we'll be back in a second with Mark Blythe. Is inflation a thing of the past? Or as former Treasury Secretary for Bill Clinton and economic advisor to Barack Obama, Larry Summers, wrote in an op-ed for The Washington Post in February, that Biden's stimulus might cause, quote, inflationary pressures of a kind we've not seen in a generation, with consequences for the value of the dollar and financial stability. In March, he repeated his warning that, quote, the risks resemble those seen in the 1970s, The idea that inflation can't suddenly spike to worrying highs is just plain wrong, he told Bloomberg TV. He added, lifting taxes on wealthy Americans and corporations could dull the spending risks. All right. Olivier Blanchard, former chief economist at the IMF, agreed with Summers on Twitter, writing that the package, that's the Biden package, could, quote, overheat the economy so badly as to be counterproductive. At a recent Monk debate, the issue was described as following. $20 trillion of government stimulus in countries around the world, interest rates so low there's no incentive to save, and more than half a billion vaccinated consumers ready to pull out their wallets and kick off the roaring 20s of the 21st century. Some experts believe that a surge of inflation such as we haven't seen since the 1970s is in the cards. Inflation bulls argue that the post-pandemic recovery Is just one of the many trends converging to create rising prices for years to come. Other economists are saying the specter of long-term rise in inflation is just that, a fiction in our imaginations. Now, joining us for his take on the issue is Mark Blythe. Mark is a political economist at Brown University. He researches the causes of stability and change in the economy, and as he says, Why people continue to believe stupid economic ideas despite buckets of evidence to the contrary. And every time I introduce them, I'm going to keep saying that because I like it. So, Mark, thanks for joining us.
1: It's always a pleasure.
0: And is the idea that inflation is about to come roaring back one of the stupid ideas that you're talking about?
1: I hope that it is, but I'm going to go with Larry on this one. He says it's about one third chance that it's going to do this. I'd probably give it about one tenth, but it's not impossible. So let's unpack why we're going to say this, right? Can you generate inflation? Yeah, I mean, dead easy. Imagine you're Turkey. Why not be a kind of Turkish pseudo dictator? Why not fire the head of your central bank in an economy that's, de- that's basically dependent on other people valuing your assets and giving you money and capital flows? And then why don't you fire a central bank head and put your brother-in-law in charge? I think it was a brother-in-law. And then basically insist that basically low interest rates cure inflation and then watch as the value of your currency, the lira, collapses, which means all the stuff you import gets massively expensive, which means that people will pay more and the general level of all prices will go up, which is an inflation. So can you generate an inflation in the modern world? Shit, yeah, easy. You just have to be an idiot, right? Now, uh, does this apply to the United States? Ah, now that's where it gets entirely different. So a couple of things to think about, or the eurozone, right? So you mentioned that huge number of $20 trillion. Well, that's more or less kind of about two-thirds of what we threw into the global economy after the global financial crisis. And inflation singularly failed to show up. All those people in 2010 screaming about inflation and China dumping bonds and all that, totally wrong, completely wrong, right? Um, No central bank that's got a brass nameplate worth a damn has managed to hit its inflation target of 2% in over a decade. So that would imply that there is a huge amount of what we call slack in the economy. Think about the fact that we've had since the 1990s across the OECD by any measure or various measures of full employment. That is to say, most people who want a job can actually find one. And at the same time, despite that, there has been almost no price pressure coming from wages pushing on into prices to push up inflation. So rather than the so-called vertical Phillips curve, which most of modern macro is based upon, whereby there's a kind of speed bump for the economy, and if the government spends money, it can't push this out, all it can do is push it up in terms of prices. right? What we seem to actually have is one that does this, whereby you can have a constant level of inflation, which is very low, and any amount of unemployment you want from 2% to 12%, depending on where you look and in which time period. All of that suggests that at least for big, developed, open, globalized economies where you've destroyed trade unions, busted up national product cartels, globally integrated your markets, added 600 million people to the global labor supply. You just can't generate inflation very easily. Now, we're running a two to, depending on how much passes, a 2 to $5 trillion experiment on which theory of inflation is right. Is it this one, or is it this one? And that's basically what we're doing just now. Larry's given it 1 in 3 that this one's right. I'd give it 1 in 10 that this one's right. Now, if I may just go on just for a few minute, for a few seconds longer, this is where the politics of this gets interesting, right? Because most people don't understand what inflation is. And you get all this stuff talked by economists and central bankers about inflation expectations and all this. But you go out and survey people, they have no idea what the damn thing is. Think about the fact that most people talk about house price inflation. There is no such thing as house price inflation. Inflation is a generalizing the level of all prices, right? and sustained rising level of prices. The fact that house prices in Toronto has gone up is because you stopped building public housing in the 1980s and turned it into an asset class and let the 10% top earners buy it all and swap it with each other. That is singularly not an inflation, right? So what's going to happen coming out of COVID? is there will be a big pickup in spending. there will be a pickup in employment. I think it's less than people expect, because the people with the money are not going to go out and spend it, because they have all the money already. There's only so many sub-zero fridges you can buy. Meanwhile, the bottom 60% of the income distribution are too busy paying back debt from the past year to go on a spending spree. But there definitely will be a pickup. Now, does that mean that there's going to be what we used to call bottlenecks? Yeah, because basically firms ran down inventory, because they're in the middle of a bloody recession, right? Does does it doesn't mean that there's going to be supply chain problems? Yes, we see this with computer chips. So what's going to happen to computer chips? They're going to go up in price. So lots of individual things are going to go up in price. And what's going to happen is people are going, there's the inflation. There's that terrible inflation. And it's not. It's just basically short-term factors that will dissipate after 18 months. That is my bet. For Larry to be right, what would have to be true? That we would have to have the institutions, agreements, labor markets, and product markets of the 1970s. We don't. So I just don't actually see what the generator of inflation would be. We're not Turkey, dependent on capital imports, dependent on physical imports for our survival, with a currency that's falling off a cliff. This is entirely different. That import mechanism, which is the way that most countries these days get a bit of inflation, simply doesn't apply to the US. So my money on it, if I had to bet, it's 1 in 10 there rather than 1 in 3.
0: The other point he raises, uh, and we talked a little bit about this in a previous interview, but let's revisit it, uh, is is that the size of the American debt, even if it isn't inflationary, uh, at some point creates some kind of crisis of confidence in in the dollar being the reserve currency of the world. And so this big infrastructure spending uh, is, is a problem because of that. That's part of, I believe, one of his arguments.
1: Yeah again this is the way in which you know political economists look at the financial plumbing I think in a different way to the way that sort of macroeconomists do um we see it rather differently the, f- the first thing is what's your alternative to the dollar right so unless you're basically going to go to gold or bitcoin good luck with those um if we go into a crushing recession and our bond market collapses don't think that Europe's going to be a safe haven, given that they've got half the US growth rate. And we could talk about what Europe's got going on post pandemic, because it's not that good. Um, What's your alternative? Buy yen? Nah, not really. You're going to buy Chinese assets. Well, good luck. And given the way that their country is being run at the moment, if you ever want to take your capital out and cry freedom of assets, I'm not sure that's going to work for you, even if you could. So you're kind of stuck with it. Mechanically, there's another problem. All of the countries that make surpluses in the world make surpluses because we run deficits. Right? One has to balance the other. So when you're a Chinese firm selling to the United States, which is probably an American firm in China with Chinese subcontractors selling to the United States, what happens is they get paid in dollars. When they receive those dollars in China, they don't let them into the domestic banking system. They sterilize them, and they turn them into the local currency, which is why China has all these reserves. So that's their national savings. That is basically their reserves. Would you like to burn your reserves in a giant pyre? Well, one way to do that would be to dump American debt, which would be equivalent to burning your national savings. Um, if you're a firm, what do you do? Well. You basically have to use dollars for your invoicing. You have to use dollars for your purchasing. And you keep accumulating dollars, which you hand back to your central bank, which then hands you the domestic currency. The central bank then has a problem because it's got a liability, cash, rather than an asset. So what's the easiest asset to buy? Buy another 10-year Treasury bill. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. So if we were to actually have that type of crisis of confidence, the people who would actually suffer would be the Germans and the Chinese, because they are export-driven models only make sense in terms of the deficits that we run. So if you think of it as kind of monetarily assured destruction, because the plumbing works this way, I just don't see how you can have that crisis of confidence, because you've got nowhere else to take your confidence.
0: The, uh, If I understand it correctly, the, ma- the majority of American government debt is held by Americans. So it's actually, really, the wealth is still inside the United States. I saw a number of this was done a few, uh, three, four years ago, maybe, but I think it was Brookings Institute, that assets after liabilities in private hands in the United States is something like $98 trillion. So, so, so I, mean, I don't get where this crisis of confidence is going to come anytime
1: soon. Basically, if your economy grows faster as the technological leader of your stock markets grow faster than others, if you're an international investor, you want access to that. So it would only be if there was actual, real, deep economic problems. Right? For example, China invents fusion energy and gives it free to the world. That would definitely screw up Texas, right? But short of that, it's hard to see exactly what would be these game changers that would result in this. Now, of course, this is where the Bitcoin people come in and all the rest of it, right? Well, it's all about crypto, and nobody has any faith in the dollar and all this sort of stuff. Well, I don't see why we have faith in something that I think it was just last week. There wasn't much reporting on this. I don't know if you caught this. but it was some 29 year old dude that held a crypto exchange i can't remember where it was now maybe somewhere like turkey and basically it had 2 billion in crypto in it and he just walked off with the cash so you know you that's your you know you don't walk off with the fed but you could walk off with a crypto exchange so until those problems are basically sorted out the notion that we can all jump into a digital currency which at the end of the day to buy anything you need to turn back into a physical currency because you don't buy your coffee with crypto you know, we're back to that problem. How do you get out of the dollar? That structural feature is incredibly important.
0: So there, there's some critique of the Biden uh, infrastructure plan, and some of the other stimulus uh, coming from the left because one, the left more or less agrees with what you said about inflation, uh, and and the critique is that it's actually not big enough. Um, and I'm, uh, let me add to that. I'm kind of a little bit surprised. Uh, maybe not anymore, but. Wall Street, on the whole, uh, you know, not Larry Summers and a few others, but most of them actually seem quite in support of the Biden plan. You don't hear a lot of screaming about inflation from Wall Street, maybe from the Republicans, but not from listening to Bloomberg Radio.
1: You don't even hear a lot of screaming about corporate taxes, which is fascinating. Right, you yeah, think I was you'd be up yeah. you think you'd be up in arms about this, right? But I actually spoke to a, a business audience recently about this, and I kind of did an informal survey, and I said, you know, why are you guys not up, up in arm about this? And someone that was on the call said, well, you know, the Warren Buffett line about you find out who's swimming when when the tide who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. What if a lot of firms that we think are great firms are just really good at tax optimization? What if those profits are really just contingent on that? It'd be really nice to know this, because then we could stop investing in them and invest in better stuff that actually does things.
0: And pick up the pieces of what's left of them for a penny if they happen to go down. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Just just one thought on that to circle back, though. When you said you know the left don't think it's big enough, et cetera. Well, yes, of course they wouldn't. And this is one of those things whereby you kind of have to check yourself i I give the the inflation problem a one in ten, right, but what i 'm really dispassionately trying to do is to look at this as a kind of an actual just a problem, right? My preferences are my political preference are they lie on the side of the state should do more. they lie on the side of i don 't think I think that we should have higher real wages. I, they lay on the side that says that populism is something that can be fixed if uh, the bottom sixty percent actually had some kind of growth, so therefore, I like programs that do that. Psychologically, I am predisposed, therefore, to discount inflation. Right? I'm totally discounting that because that's my priors. And I'm really deeply trying to check this. In the debate, it's always worth bearing this in mind, no one's doing that. The Republicans in the right are absolutely going to hellbent on inflation because it's not because they necessarily really believe in inflation, because it's a useful way to stop things happening. Right. And then for the left to turn around and say, well, it isn't big enough. I mean, you might as well play double or quits because, you know, you've got Biden and that's the best it's going to get. So there's a way in which, when we really are trying to figure out these things, we kind of have to check our partisan preferences because they do basically multiply the errors in our thinking, I think.
0: Now, earlier you said that one of the main factors why inflation is structurally low now. I don't know if you said exactly those words, but that's what you were saying. I would
1: say that, yes.
0: It's the weakness of the unions, the weakness of, of workers in virtually all countries, but particularly in the U.S. because it matters so much. and uh, th- That organizing of workers is just so, so – they're so unable – to raise their wages. Over decades, of, of essentially, have been wages that barely keep up with inflation and, and don't grow in any way, certainly not in any relationship to a, the way productivity has grown. So we as progressives, well, we want workers to get better organized. We want
1: stronger unions. Uh, we want higher wages, but we want it without inflation. And there's a question of how much room you have to do that. I mean, Essentially, if you quintuple the money supply, eventually prices will have to rise. But that depends upon the velocity of money, which has actually been collapsing. So maybe you'd have to do it 10 times. There's interesting research out of London, which I saw a couple of weeks ago, that basically says you really can't correlate inflation with increases in the money supply. It's just not true. It's not the money that's doing it. It's the expectations. That then begs the question, well, who's actually paying attention if we all don't really understand what inflation is? So I tend to think of this as basically a kind of a physical process. It's very easy to understand. If your currency goes down by 50% and you're heavily dependent on imports, your imports go up, yeah, all the prices in the shops are going to go up, right? That's a mechanism that I can clearly identify will generate rising prices. If you have big unions, if you have kind of cartel-like vertically integrated firms that control the national market, if you have COLA contracts, right? if you have labor able to basically do what we used to call leapfrogging wage claims against other unions, if this is all institutionally and legally protected, I can see how that generates inflation. That is a mechanism I can point to. That doesn't exist just now. So just let's unpack this for a minute. The sort of the, the, the fundamental theoretical assumption on this is basically kind of marginal productivity theory of wages, right? In a perfectly free market with free exchange, which we don't live in, what would happen is you would hire me up to the point that my marginal product is basically paying off for you. And once it produces zero profits, that's it. That's kind of where my wages are. I'm paid up to the point that like my marginal product is useful to the firm, to put it that way, very simply. Now, this is a useful way of thinking about it, but it bears no reality to anything in the world. Because if you're the employer and I'm the worker, uh, I walk up to you and say, hey, my marginal productivity is seven, so how about you pay me seven bucks? And you go, shut up, or I'll fire you and get someone else. Now the way that we used to deal with this, we used to do this this kind of like higher than your your outside option on wages, right? So the way we used to think about this is, why would you pay somebody ten bucks at McDonald's? Because then you might actually get them to stay and flip the burgers, because their outside option is probably seven bucks, and if you pay them seven bucks, they just won't show up. So we used to have to pay them a bit more. So that was, in a sense, claiming productivity. But now what we've done, Suresh Naidu, the economist, had been talking about this the other day, uh, is we have all these technologies for surveilling workers. So now what we can do is take that difference between 7 and 10 and just squash it. Because we can actually pay you at your outside option, because I monitor everything you do. And if you don't do exactly what I say, I'll fire you and get somebody else for 7 bucks. So all the mechanisms of the surplus of sharing productivity, unions, Technology in the hands of employers, right? It's all it's, its just going against labor. So we have this fiction that somehow when the economy grows or productivity goes up, workers share in that. There is abs- Again, what's the mechanism? And once you take out unions and once you weaponize the ability of employers to extract surplus through mechanisms like technology, franchising, all the rest of it, then it just tilts the playing field so much that we just don't see any increase in wages. Let's bring this back to inflation. Unless you see systematic increases in the real wage that increase costs for firms to the point that they need to push on prices, you don't see the mechanism for generating inflation. It just ain't there. And we've underpaid the bottom 60% of, our, of the US labor market so long, it would take a hell of a lot of wage inflation to get there, with or without unions.
0: Yeah. What's that number that if the minimum wage was uh, adjusted for inflation and it was what the minimum wage was, what, 30 years ago, the minimum wage would be somewhere between 25 and 30 bucks. Yeah. uh, and, And that wasn't causing raging inflation.
1: No, and, and this, that's the RAND study from November 2020. Uh, was a wonderfully adenine titled Trends in Income 1979 to 2020. And they calculate, and I think this is the number, but even if I'm off the order of magnitude is there, that transfers, because of tax and regulatory changes from the 90% of the distribution to the 10%, total something in the order of $34 trillion. That's how much vacuumed up and Practically nothing trickled down. So when you consider that as a mechanism of extraction, uh, we're worrying about inflation. The best story on inflation is actually Charles Goodhart's book that came out last year. The you get a lot of this because of global supply chaining. You get a lot of it because of the demographic advantage that you have. It's a combination of uh, global supply chains, Chinese labor, demographics all come together to basically push down labor. And that's why you get this long period of deflation, which leads to rising profits and zero inflation. Perfectly reasonable way of explaining it. And his point is that, well, that's coming to an end. The demographics are shifting. They're shrinking. We're going back to more closed economies. You're going to create this problem. OK, what's the timeline on that? About 20 years. A few years ago, we were told we had 12 years to fix the climate problem or we're in deep shit. If we have to face the climate problem versus single to double digit inflation, I'm wondering which one's a real problem here. Mm. All
0: right. Thanks for joining us, Mark.
1: It's been a pleasure as always.
0: And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button, the shares buttons, the subscribe buttons, and see you again soon.